0: I want to turn you this morning to John chapter 21 21st chapter the gospel according to John John the beloved disciple who does not refer to himself ever in the first person in this gospel this will be the third time that the Lord Jesus Christ met with his followers after his resurrection. We have, of course, multiple recordings of his meeting with his own. And Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians 15 that 500 people at once beheld him, the risen Christ. Uh, we have the eyewitnesses, of course, of the apostles themselves. When John writes in the first epistle, Uh, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, and handled, Uh, the Lord Jesus, when he met with his apostles and his followers behind shut doors on a, a Sunday evening, first day of the week, he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. The Lord Jesus Christ actually died. He gave up the ghost, the scripture says. He died. He cried those wondrous words for us if we comprehend the finished redemption of Christ, that he completely accomplished redemption when he cried, it is finished. So that all whom God is pleased to call by his grace Who come to hear in their soul the gospel of the Son of God, that Christ died for sinners, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, that he is Lord indeed, that God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus one day every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. We'll read a passage in John twenty, and then we're going to read a passage in John twenty one, which will be our consideration. In John chapter twenty and verses one through ten. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But we're going to look particularly at the third time the Lord Jesus Christ meets with his followers in the 21st chapter in verses 1 through 8. And after these things, Jesus showed himself again to, his, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that is another word for the Galilean Sea or the Galilean Lake. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, And Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, That disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he gird his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes." There are those who take the view that this last chapter of the Gospel of John was written by the hand of John, but was added at a later time. Then uh, there are those who also uh, believe that this last chapter of John is like the first chapter being a prologue. This is the epilogue. That's what I believe it is, the epilogue. Because when you read the Gospel of John, its purpose is reached when you get through chapter 20. And uh, it almost sounds as if it could end in uh, chapter 20. It appears that way when reading it. In that chapter, Thomas made his great confession, and that confession, which corresponds with the prologue of this gospel that sets forth the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John writes, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then he tells of the Word becoming flesh, becoming human, taking human nature into union with his eternal deity the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth of course then we have the confession just before the purpose of this gospel is given where thomas falls before the risen christ having said i'm not going to believe unless i can Touch him, lest I can see him, lest I can experience this. The Lord Jesus tells him, "Go ahead." He falls before him, crying that great confession, "My Lord and my God." Then we have the purpose of the gospel. Many other signs. Truly did Jesus, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John chapter 21 we view as an epilogue, meaning a conclusion but with additional information. This chapter is rich in instruction for us. Not to mention, when you read further in this chapter, and there's a special call given to Peter to feed the Lord's sheep that many have been called by that passage into the gospel ministry, including this preacher. But for all those who are genuinely born of God, who possess life, real life, spiritual life in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, It gives us some tremendous instructions concerning character and the Lord's mercy, concerning a service, concerning evangelism, the witnessing of the gospel. Another wrote, it is history. The events and conversations really happened, but it is symbolic history by which the essential principles concerning Christ's rule over the church during this age are forcibly communicated. So we want to look at some of those great lessons from this chapter during this message. We have the gathering in Galilee. Those disciples who were in Jerusalem, now they had moved to Galilee, and who they were in verses 1 and 2 of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon, Peter, and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. This third time the Lord Jesus meets with his disciples, this time in Galilee, was according to what he promised to do. He had promised to meet them in Galilee. And those who were the blessed recipients of this appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, as shall be a major point in the passage, were those who obeyed him. They were to go. Into Galilee. You can look back not very far in Mark, in Mark chapter 14, and in verses 27 and 28. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. He's quoting that from Zechariah's prophecy. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Now that's a promise. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to go before them. He's going to go into Galilee. At first, after the crucifixion, they stayed at Jerusalem. And that's where the Lord appeared the first two times to his followers. But soon, they made their way to Galilee. And they were no longer, as they did in Jerusalem, meet behind closed doors out of fear. Of course, they were scattered. And out of fear, they met behind closed doors in Jerusalem because of their identification With the lord jesus christ here in galilee we find them openly meeting with the lord openly in the very place where they were really best known where they also proclaimed the gospel where they were known to be the disciples of the lord jesus christ they were fearful in jerusalem where they weren't as well known, but not in Galilee, where they were well known. Why did they meet openly now? Meeting together as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer scattered, but they are now bound together as if it's by some living union. And here they are together again. Again in Galilee nothing could explain this which has been called a strange phenomenon except one great truth Jesus Christ was risen indeed they had experienced they were eyewitnesses they could not deny it there they were now in Galilee in obedience to the lord's command where the Lord gave them the message through the angel, There shall you see me. He, that was a promise. They would see him in Galilee after he rose from the dead. Where Christ, where is truly he is truly the sinner that draws together those who believe, who know him. Where his word and the desire for him, not simply compelling duty, but wanting him, desiring him, knowing that nothing means anything without him. That's where the promise of the Lord is realized, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. Where two or three are actually in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he is Lord indeed to them. Where their hearts are toward him, they want him. They don't come to church, as it were, to fulfill simply a duty. They want to come and meet with the Lord himself. And they want to meet with him with those who know him. And he promises to be in the midst. The gathering together. The gathering, not forsaken, because Christ is not forsaken. The gathering of the church is in Scripture an anticipation of the great gathering that is to come. We live in a fallen world. We live in a country that's on the decline It's incredible, of course, what's taking place. Unless God turns it around, it will collapse as much as did the Roman Empire. But those who are in Christ, those who belong to Him, those who, in belonging to Him, are joined one to another in Him, rejoice in the gathering of the saints, That gathering anticipates the final gathering when he comes the second time. Of course, that's included in not forsaking the assembling of yourselves to gather, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. The Apostle Paul can exhort the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning the gathering that shall take place when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in glory. All of the saints shall gather together. All of my dear brethren, now old enough to realize many of them, going to speak in the conference in St. Louis. Many of those who spoke in that conference when I began, over I guess a quarter century ago now, there was the Lord. They're with him. Many of your loved ones who died in the Lord, they're going to be in that gathering when he comes. It is a glorious thing. But the saints alive now want to gather together. They love to be together. They want to be together. But they want to be together in him. Where he is central. But we consider the significance of those in our text who gathered and some encouragement we might draw from it. We read in verse 2, There were together Simon Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Five of this group, with great importance for us to know, were the very same men who comprised the nucleus of the church to begin with. They were the first called. And they were called at the Sea of Galilee, as significantly recorded, of course, in the very first chapter of this Gospel of John. Peter, Nathaniel, and John were called by name. In the beginning. And in all likelihood. Philip and Andrew. Peter's brother. Who were also called. Were. Are. The two unnamed. Disciples. Two others. Thomas. By name. And the other son of Zebedee. James. Bring the number. To seven. Seven of them. Gathered. Together. The scripture. The scripture has a tremendous lesson for us as well. Those whom Christ saves by his grace, those whom he calls by his grace, he keeps them. He keeps them, just as these were kept. The very first ones, that's a tremendous lesson, of course, we have here. A tremendous illustration of an edifying truth stated in Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Those whom Christ calls by his gospel, those whom he calls out of the world and unto himself, he keeps. That, of course, we find... Blessedly in the great high priest prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whom thou hast given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. He prayed that when he knew these men were going to forsake him out of fear. The cross was horrendous, even physically. Even more so, spiritually, for the Lord Jesus Christ The Romans were formidable. Those men were fearful and they fled. Though they fled, the Lord Jesus Christ would not reject them. They were his. They were bought by his redeeming blood. With all the weakness displayed by the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the little faith. Often he had to reprove them, "O ye of little faith." The oft spiritual ignorance that they displayed when he would teach something and they didn't take it in. The despites and the hatreds they would feel from an unbelieving world, and the fear that would scatter them when the Lord Jesus was apprehended. Yet a stronger hand would keep them. It's not just taught here in the New Testament. That's something no man can explain that does not believe. How God, in his word, prophetically, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before, prophesied exactly what was going to take place. The Lord Jesus quoted from Zechariah chapter 13 in our Bible, verse 7, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. That is, they will come back. They will be recovered. What a wondrous, blessed, glorious thing. The Lord Jesus giving the assurance to those who are His, to those who believe on Him, to those who desire Him above all, to those who want Him, to those who find Him there all in all, To those who hear his voice, in his word, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one in all the trials, in all the battles, even in the falls and the recoveries, in all the acknowledged temptation from an enticing world, if you continue in spite of them, and in spite of yourself, you owe it all to the grace of God and nothing else. You owe it all to the keeping Christ. to the strength of the love that will not let you go, and to nothing else. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, declared the Lord Jesus, that of all which you hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. That's the blessed comfort He gives to us, hearing Him say that in His Word, who know Him, who trust Him, who believe Him, who want Him, who receive Him, who acknowledge Him, who bow to Him as Lord alone. As to emphasize the legitimacy of this application, Nathaniel, Nathaniel is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. He's mentioned in the first chapter and the last chapter of the Gospel of John. It makes us think of the connection of the keeping grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who were called, those who suffered, those who battled unbelief, those who had trials and difficulties, and those who witnessed the resurrection, uh, having witnessed the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're kept. Here they are, gathered. Isn't that a wondrous thing? That's what we find here. He keeps his own. We've passed 49 years as a church. I think the lady may do something special for our anniversary on the day when we have the Lord's table. The Lord has kept it. He's the one who said, I've set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. Plenty have tried. Plenty have tried, but unable to do so. Much warfare. The Lord does what he says. He keeps what he says he will do. He keeps his promises perfectly. But I want us to look at two. Two that head the list here. Peter. Peter, the denier, now humbled, now stripped of all of his self-confident, boasting ability to stand with Christ and even die with him. Now to learn the great lesson he heard, but didn't really hear evidently before. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And he wouldn't with all that he had gone through. He wouldn't. He'll learn the wonders of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he denied him three times. The Lord will ask him three times, and he knew the answer. Lovest thou me? More than these. Peter. Thomas. Thomas. Thomas was the former defiant unbeliever. He just couldn't believe unless he experienced it. Thomas. <clears throat> he too. He is now humbled. Now trusting. Now he is the confessor of the higher nature of, Of the incarnate Lord as he falls before him crying, My Lord and my God. So the lesson is aptly drawn by another is Let us learn who they are, to whom Jesus Christ deigns to manifest himself. No immaculate monsters, but men that have having fallen have learned humility and caution and by penitence have risen to a securer standing and have turned even their transgressions into steps in the ladder that lifts to Christ. Now that's something when our falls are used of God to bring us closer to the Lord. And that's what happened with these men. And then we have the great lessons we could draw from the empty and then the full fishing net. In verses 3 through 11. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They uh, say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore. And now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter it is the Lord and when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord he gird his fisher's coat unto him for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea and the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land but as it were two hundred cubits dragging the net with fishes Well, there's something we could begin with here when we consider these disciples going fishing again. And we consider something about them and about their differing characteristics, which I think will afford us a great lesson. These were not chosen from among the rich or the influential or the cultured or the highly educated. Of the world. These were men who had to work hard for their living. They were men who had calluses on their hands. So it may have been since some time had passed. Since the Lord Jesus last showed them to him on the second Sunday. After his resurrection. They thought we're going to have to go back to work. We're going to have to go back to our former occupation. Of course, we know that work, hard work, diligence, industry, is commended by God. We know that's so. Every nation where men have started taking from the public trough, as it were, where the diligent support the indigent, that nation is heading toward a collapse. God... Ordained work. Work is a good thing. These men were hard workers. It was while they were working. They were performing the arduous task. Of their fishing business. At least some of them. While they were at this work. The Lord called them. To leave their nets. When in the first when he called them in chapter 1 when they saw him for the first time and he called them he called them to leave their fishing nets and to labor in his vineyard and says unto them I will make you fishers of men and they still are I will make you fishers of men these men were common laborers These who worked with their hands in following Christ, in following Him only. They became the instruments in His hands that would become the first founders of His mighty church. They, who were deemed by others unlearned and ignorant, That's what they said about Peter and John. These were unlearned and ignorant men. But they took knowledge of them, of one thing they had been with Jesus. These men turned systems of philosophy on its head, they silenced the so called prudent and wise of this world in the preaching of the gospel of the cross. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing can account for the glorious gospel we read. Written by John who puts himself completely in the background in this gospel. Or the epistles of Peter. So rich and full throughout. Having the highest of true wisdom and instruction. They were taught of the Lord. They were taught in the school of Christ. They were given abilities that were wondrously supernatural. They would turn the world upside down. Why? Because they were actually yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were instruments in His sovereign hands. He gave them a wisdom that is higher than any wisdom of the world. That transcended it. It came from Him. The Lord giveth wisdom. Out of His mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Proverbs two six. There are those who have doctorates. They don't have near the knowledge. My grandmother had. And I don't think she made it through the 8th grade. That wasn't... Necessary then, it seemed, for them. But she knew some things they could not comprehend. How different these men were from one another. They weren't all robotic alike. They differed. They were different. They were different, different in temperament. They were different in ability. And that's surely demonstrated in our passage. Peter is a man of action. Can't help but seeing that. He's always forward, he's always the spokesman. He's already to be first. He's already to say, well, I'm going with him to death. He's a man of action. He took the lead. And determined. We're not going to simply wait. We're going to go to work. Let's go fishing. That was Peter. But John. In the chapter before. At the gravesite, Was the first one to perceive. It is the Lord. It's the Lord. Who's standing on shore. It's. Our Savior, it's our Lord who died on that Roman cross and is now standing on shore, who met with us twice before on Sunday evening. It is Him. There again, Peter jumps into the water that was true to his character. He's going to be the first to get there. He's going to be the very first one to get there. So he jumps in the water to go to where the Lord Jesus Christ is. I shouldn't even mention it again, but the worst thing I ever heard preached from this passage was that he tried to drown himself. Well, if that's the case, it is sure strange he was the first one on shore, isn't it? That was Peter. He wanted to be there with his Lord. As has been said, John was the first to see, but Peter was the first to act. John's gentle, loving spirit was first to discern, but Peter's fiery, impulsive nature was quickest to stir and move. And yet both were believers. Both were true-hearted disciples. Both loved the Lord in life, and both were faithful unto Him till death. You see, God gives differing gifts to His children. Each to be used in its particular place. All have a gift or gifts. Some are more in private. Others more in public. Public. There are some who are given a special ministry of prayer, but they're diligent in it. They seek God's face. They believe Him. They they make a ministry of it. I've heard of dear saints of God who have not been able sometimes because of severe affliction to get much out of their house. But they make a ministry of prayer, seeking the Lord's face. Some are more public. Some are seen more in what they do. Some are more reserved. Some more active. But all are to have the motive of bringing glory to God in obedience to Him. These we read about. They obeyed the Lord. He said, go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. I'll meet you in Galilee. They did what he said. Those who believe him and walk in simple obedience to him. He makes them his instruments. In whatever way, he may be pleased to use them. And if the love of the Lord who saves and equips to serve him is really there. If the glory of God is truly the aim in all that you do, then he will, in the way he chooses, use you as he will, according to his will. If there be, though, in our passage, one overruling lesson to be laid strongly to heart, It could be drawn from the words of our Lord back in the 15th chapter of this gospel. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. The Lord is teaching these disciples and he's teaching us through them that our failures are as much of him as our successes. Hello, wait, did you catch that? He's teaching through these disciples that our failures are as much of him as our successes. He's teaching dependence upon himself. He's teaching the great truth that he must direct and bless our labors. And here the lesson goes far beyond the work you do for your livelihood that you're to do for its glory whatsoever you do do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men as we're commanded in Colossians chapter 3 but this is not simply speaking of your livelihood the lesson is to teach a spiritual truth that spiritual truth is that our labors must be in the Lord Without me ye can do nothing. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It has to be in him directed by him. It's not about us, not about me. It's about him. Not about you, it's about him. You bear testimony to Him where you go. Unless you still belong to yourself, and if you belong to yourself, you're not saved. But if He redeemed you for Himself, and He's truly your Lord, your business is to honor Him, to magnify Him, to be a witness for Him. And He'll direct you. he 'll direct you. and when he directs you, what will be accomplished is exactly what his purpose to be accomplished. And seeing no matter how sharp you might be, mentally or physically, no matter however capable you might be in your work in this world, you can become spiritually weak. You can be forgetful. You can fall prey to trying to do things in your own strength. You can be carried away with the pressures of this world. But he said, without me, ye can do nothing. When the Lord Jesus addresses them as children, Children, have you any meat? They're cutting fish. When he addresses them as children, that means little children. He causes them to have to face their situation with the question, have you any meat? They answered him no. This term, little children, it may be indeed a term of endearment, but we've found the same word as we've studied John's gospel, or or rather the first epistle of John, and it describes the first stage of spiritual strength. Little children. Little children, rather immature. Now, I know they're grown men but they were spiritually immature. They wouldn't remain that way. And what they must learn, and we must not forget, is that anything that will be accomplished for eternity, anything that is done in you, anything that is done that is God's work and done for eternity, must be done in complete dependence upon the Lord Himself. By faith, looking to him for direction, a willingness to do what his word commands. Cast it on the right side of the ship and ye shall find. If you are concerned, truly, with the eternal salvation of men, with the, those in your own family who are lost and they're going to perish and they're not going to be in heaven, they're going to be in hell. Because they're going to die in sin. The most horrendous word you could ever hear. They're going to perish without Christ unless He saves them. If you're truly concerned with the eternal salvation of men, of those in your family, those you work with, those you're acquainted with, those you converse with, who are lost In the sea of this world. And you're concerned. Enough to endeavor to give them. The only saving gospel. That God gave. That Christ came to save sinners. That he died on an old Roman cross. In order to pay the sin debt. For others. That he rose again from the dead. And those who are called. And who come to him. God mercifully gives them the wondrous reality that they have eternal life. If you have that concern, you have evidence that you too are saved. But you must look to Christ. You must depend only upon Him. And realize that it must be God who calls to Christ through your witness or all no matter if you toil day and light, will yield no fruit. Without me, ye can do nothing. I ought to daily cry unto him in prayer, seek his face. I ought to daily desire his direction, lead us, guide us. I ought to daily ask him to make us an instrument for his glory. And toward the salvation of others. Do what he commands. Look to his word for direction. He who called thee said, I will make you a fisher of men. He used the illustration of what they were doing. He does it again. At my word. Cast. Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. And they weren't able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Believing Him, acting upon what He said, depending upon Him, and you'll find out, just as John the Apostle knew, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. And the Lord does not give his word in vain. He does not give promises in vain of what he will do if his word is kept and obeyed. If you realize, anyone here, that you're a lost sinner, that you're going to stand before God in judgment. They have no righteousness of your own to bring and present to him that's acceptable to him. They have no ability to save yourself. Here is word. Here is word. Come unto me. Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest under your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're in the most serious place you've ever been in your whole life right now. Oh, that God would open a heart for hearts. And give a hearing of his gospel, of his word. That some would turn from sin and calling upon him in faith. Believing him your only hope. That the only way you can be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or else, otherwise, there's no other alternative whatsoever. Otherwise, you'll find the sea of life to be turbulent. And eventually, it's going to bring you to total shipwreck. That we don't want. Isaiah, long before, in Isaiah chapter 57, wrote that men... And sin are like the turbulent sea when it casts up its mire. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Learn of Christ. Trustingly, put yourself in his hands. You'll find rest for your soul and direction for living. Even in this turbulent sea of life. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.